While the eyes of the world were concentrated on Europe, a new strain of influenza unlike any seen before was born. Within five months, the new strain had circled the globe and further mutated itself to become the powerful killer that it was. When influenza first appeared in America in March of 1918, the nation paid little heed to it. The Russians had just withdrawn from World War I, and Germany was moving division after division to the Western Front. As a reply to urgent appeals from the Allies, America sent a total of 202,000 troops to France. America began the largest mobilization in its history. Consequently, the country's lack of attention to the relatively mild first wave of the great pandemic is not surprising. But while few took notice, something new and deadly was seeding itself in the throats and lungs of Americans that would bury more human beings than the war. Hi, I'm Suzanne Story, and this is Love in the Time of COVID-19. Hello, and welcome to the podcast, Love in the Time of COVID-19. We will talk about how relationships are changing during this time, but it's more about how we react to those changes. Please take a moment for yourself, breathe, and enjoy the podcast. Today's episode of the podcast is about the coronavirus in a relationship with the 1918 influenza pandemic. There are a lot of similarities, but there are a lot of differences. The 1918 flu pandemic was also a novel virus, and where it started is really kind of about three different guesses from the world population. And speaking of the world, about a third of the world population was affected by the 1918 virus. Viruses were absolutely not understood. It was kind of like a poison, and your doctor would more than likely perform a bloodletting than anything else. The word influenza comes from the Italian word influenza, meaning to influence, and many people thought that we were influenced by the alignment of the stars. A lot of people talk about the 1918 flu and they say the Spanish flu. Interestingly enough, the reason why it's referred to as the Spanish flu is that many governments all over the world had agreements with reporters not to write about bad news at this time. And this was something that was worldwide, except for in Spain. Spain was generally neutral. As you know, the 1918 World War One was uh, in its peak and Spain was neutral. So things were actually reported there. But it was not anything that started in Spain. It was just mainly reported in Spain. So let me tell you about a few things that were going on in 1918. The world was at war. There was also great death. Documents of the first case of the 1918 flu actually come from Haskell County, Kansas, about 200 miles west of Wichita, Kansas, and doctors there warned other physicians of the outbreak. From there, it spread outward, and it would spread to army bases, and army soldiers would be transported to and from all of the different places and all over the United States, and a lot of people think that that's how the flu 
was spread at that time. Also, there is a thought that northern France had the initial outbreak from a bird that transmitted it to a host, and it also spread rapidly from that point. Thirdly, some people think that China was the outbreak origin, and it was brought to the U.S. by all of the Chinese workers filling in for the population that was at war, and the United States needed to bring in workers from around the world, predominantly from China. It will probably never be known for sure if it was a soldier during World War I moving about, but it's definitely interesting to understand that there were a lot of different theories as to where the 1918 influenza began. To set the scene, if you lived in a city, you probably lived in really poor conditions cramped together in tenement buildings, and there were also fears and rampant rumors of people nearby falling ill and also dying of this disease. So at this time in cities, there was a fair amount of social distancing, much like today. Churches were being closed. Stores would have staggered openings for different sections of the population. Dance halls were closed down. Eventually, there were no funerals to be held. One of the most interesting things is, back in 1918, spitting on the sidewalks or in public was forbidden. And that's probably why, because people thought this is disease that can be given to another person through bodily fluids. Newspapers also tried to calm people down and told everyone not to worry, get back to work, eat healthy food, get some sunshine. And one of the most interesting things about the Spanish flu, or the 1918 flu, compared to the coronavirus, is that the Spanish flu affected mainly healthy people, healthy young people. And that's really not the case that we're seeing today. We're seeing that the older population are, are being affected. There was also not a lot of communication, just the newspapers, which were not really reporting bad news or would put the bad news on the very back pages of the paper. Telephone operators, if you were lucky enough or had a social standing enough to have a telephone in your house, telephone operators that were connecting calls were also getting ill and many of those telephone companies were shut down for only emergencies. So you really might not know what was going on from town to town or from city to city, definitely not from state to state. It seems like today you can really not compare what was going on in 1918 because now you can turn around and find out just about anything you want to about the coronavirus or COVID-19. It is everywhere. It's in your newspaper. It's on social media. Your neighbors are telling you about it. Your mom is calling and telling you what she's heard. Your kids are even bringing it home. You really, really can't get away from it. And that is, I think, what one of the worst things about this coronavirus today. We are bombarded by information overload. The life expectancy in 1918-1919 dropped 
12 years, and that is an absolute astronomical number. I actually had a relative that died of the 1918 flu. I was lucky enough this morning to catch a telephone conversation with my mother, who is currently self-quarantined at her home due to her age and underlying conditions. She was talking to me about my great-great-uncle, Joel Williamson. Who was Joel Williamson? Joel was married to my great-aunt, Clara Gray. Was he a farmer or a rancher? Farmer. Uh, He was born at uh, Hamilton, Texas, February the 4th, 1893, and he died December the 10th, 1918, at Nakona, buried at Mosby Chapel Cemetery. What year did he marry Clara? He married Clara, who was born in 1900. They were married February the 2nd, 1913. How many children did they have? They had two children. Uh, Their first child was uh, Glado Williamson, and he was born in 1915. And they had a second child, Lola. She was born August the 8th, 1917. They lived, it was across the highway from Prairie Valley School, uh, west of there, west of Prairie Valley School, across the uh, the highway, not too far from the gray home place where Clara grew up. While trying to familiarize myself with the 1918 influenza epidemic, in the portal of Texas History Nakona newspaper, October 1918 edition, folks around Nakona were falling ill. The paper specifically names Dr. N.W. Crane traveling to Washington, D.C., but he had to leave the train in Pennsylvania to be hospitalized. He eventually returned back to Nakona, still quite sick. I bet there were more people that died in Nakona than anyone probably even realized. Oh, I'm sure there was. It was a terrible thing. Joel died during the 1918 flu epidemic. His last words to Clara were, Take the children to church. In an article of the Nakona newspaper, Friday, November 1st, 1918 edition, there is a very interesting column on the third page of four pages of the newspaper and it says it's Spanish influenza precautions. Number one, keep in mind that like most contagious diseases, influenza is spread by contact, that is by the transfer of the poison from one person to another. It is spread by sneezing, coughing, and spitting, at which time the discharge from the nose and throat are scattered in the air. Number two, avoid crowds as much as possible, including moving picture places, theaters, and other assembly halls. When feasible, avoid crowded streetcars. Number three, when sneezing or coughing, place your handkerchief before your nose and mouth. Number four, make sure that you are properly clothed in accordance with the varying changes in the temperatures prevalent at this time of the year. 
5. Fresh air is always good. Keep your bedroom windows wide open and secure as much sleep as possible. Number 6. Keep the digestive organs in good condition. 7. Drink water freely. 8. Avoid common drinking cups, common towels, and similar utensils. 9. Wash your hands frequently. 10. Use a mild antiseptic as a nose spray or as a mouth gargle, especially if your throat is sore or there's a tendency to sneezing. Number 11. If you have a cold, use utensils for your personal and exclusive use only. Number 12. Consult family physicians at the first onset of the symptoms suggesting influenza. Number 13. Spread this information as much as possible in newspapers, moving picture shows, schoolhouses, churches, etc. And this was signed F.G. Pernod, Medical Advisor, Southwestern Division, American Red Cross. I have looked around a lot of the Nakona newspapers during the time of the 1918 Spanish influenza or the 1918 flu. And one of the recurring advertisements that I'm seeing absolutely in every issue is called Cardui, the woman's tonic. The ad reads like this. She writes further, I am in splendid health. I can do my work. I feel as I owe it to Cardui, for I was in a dreadful condition. If you're nervous, run down, and weak, or suffer from headache, backache, etc., every month, try Cardui. Thousands of women praise this medicine for the good it has done them, and many physicians who have used Cardui successfully with their women patients for years endorse this medication. Think what it means to be in splendid health, like Mrs. Spell. Give Cardui a trial. So I decided to do a little bit of investigation into Cardui, and I found out that, like most such medicines, I think it owed a lot of its power to its high alcohol content, 19% by volume, which is a lot more than wine. And like most patent medicines, it promised to cure a huge range of ailments, many incurable even today, tumors, cancer, women's diseases, and Cardui specifically claimed to relieve women's diseases, which I'm sure it did, numbing the imbiber several days a month. In the 1960s at Johns Hopkins, there was a pharmacist of a drugstore next to the campus that told about elderly neighborhood ladies that were the main purchasers of such medicine because it was an acceptable way to consume alcohol because respectable women did not frequent liquor stores. Anchor Podcasting and Spotify brings you great podcasts like Alyssa Milano's Sorry Not Sorry. I'm Suzanne Story, and this has been Love in the Time of COVID-19, brought to you by the studios of North Fork of Red River, a Texas-based studio.